Specialty Story, session number 162. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited to bring another great physician to you today. We have a pediatric urologist on, Dr. Courtney Rowe, who is a pediatric urologist at Connecticut Children's Hospital, which I'm intimately familiar with after some care for my daughter. So Dr. Rowe and I have a great conversation about her non-traditional path to becoming a physician and the mentor that guided her and exposed her to pediatric urology. We start the conversation by finding out how Dr. Rowe first became interested in pediatric urology. So my story is actually a little bit convoluted. So medicine is actually a second career for me. Uh, I actually did interactive computer sculpture in undergrad and graduate school and kind of recognized that it was not the right fit for me and that I wanted something a little bit more concrete in terms of how I would help people. So I ended up going back, taking more classes, basically going back to school to go to medical school. And I had never really thought about a surgical specialty. I was a little bit older. Surgeons in my mind were a particular way. They were male. They were tall. They were something very specific, (laughs) right? (laughs) The stereotype that we all have. Um, I had it too. And so I just never really saw myself as a surgeon. Um, But I had done a lot of uh, kind of hand work with my hands. I had done a lot of electrical work, soldering, building things. And in the end, was introduced to a really cool urology mentor uh, during my physical diagnostics class, my second year of medical school. And I assumed that I would not like surgery. And so I was going to get it out of the way early as a third year medical student. And I was worried I would pass out. (laughs) So she, right. (laughs) Funny in retrospect. um, So she offered to have me shadow her in her urology clinic so that I would see some surgeries and some procedures so I wouldn't pass out the first day. And I did it as a second year medical student and I loved it. Uh, It was a combination of diagnosis, a combination of small procedures, you know, cystoscopies. We ran up to the operating room. We did some consults. It was just this really great, engaging way to practice medicine that was also very tech heavy um, and that was uh, just just really fun and seemed very immediate. You know, you felt like you were really quickly helping people. Yeah. So I love that. Um, but my my, I, I felt like I was a weak applicant for urology because I didn't really have a traditional medical school background. You know, I had all this art background and other things like that, but no research. So when I decided I wanted to apply to urology, I said, well, let me get some more research experience. Um, and at the time my mentor was at, uh, just a community hospital. And so she said, why don't you reach out to the local children's hospital, which was Boston children's? Mm -hmm. She said they have a ton of money 
and they will be able to support your research. So I accidentally cold called the head of Boston <laughs> Children's Urology by mistake and told him my, my story, my life story. And he put me in contact with a translational researcher at Boston Children's in Pediatric Urology. And then I spent about a year and a half as a at the end of medical school doing work with him and then spent a full year in between medical school and residency doing uh, research in his lab, kind of running his lab for him. Uh, so that really gave me the pediatric urology bug. Of course, it's a very small specialty. There aren't a lot of us. Um, and when you're looking at a smaller specialty, you have to, first of all, know that you love the content because it is, in some ways, it is doing it over and over again. Um, but you also have to recognize that the job opportunities are going to be a little bit more challenging. And so, again, it took me a while to kind of uh, get around to the idea of just committing to pediatric urology. And I probably did that, oh, I don't know, somewhere in the third or fourth year of residency, uh, applied to fellowship and uh, never looked back. Yeah. I've heard this story over and over and over again about mentors really being the guiding path for so many physicians for their specialty. And and you mentioned it earlier, right? This The stereotype that, that most people have in their head about who surgeons are. But then when you actually look at the urology subspecialty. I mean, women urologists are few and far between. How mm -hmm. lucky do you think it was for you to find a, a female mentor for you? Very lucky. But, but also I think, you know, this particular surgeon makes an effort. She really reaches out. She mentors people, male and female, and yeah. she was volunteering for that physical diagnostic class. She put herself out there to be in a position to reach out to people in early in their training. And I think that while we are, I think urology might be the worst in terms of the gender divide. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the women who are in urology, we try to make more of an effort because we know that. Yeah. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that you're constantly needing to fight among pre-meds and medical students? So I think that most people don't know what pediatric urologists do, which maybe is a testament to us doing a good job. Uh, we take care of congenital conditions that uh, hopefully are are fixed once we're done with the child. Uh, so I think most people, when they hear that I'm a urologist and I'm pediatric, they sort of say, wait, what kind of prostate problems do kids get? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> so, they, they kind of assume that that adult urologists only really deal with prostates, yeah. you know, BPH and prostate cancer and things like that. And then I have to say, no, no, urologists do do all of the GU organs, you know, the the kidneys and the bladder and the genitalia and and um, therefore pediatric urologists have plenty of work to do. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about some of those congenital things. What are some of the bread and butter or some of the, the zebras that you're seeing day in and day out? Yeah. So the bread and butter stuff is, is differences in testicles, like undescended testicles, um, differences in, uh, kidneys like hydronephrosis, um, in the category of hydronephrosis, we see reiteral pelvic junction obstructions, uh, which are basically blockages when the kidney is draining. We see urinary reflux, which is urine going from the bladder up to the kidney. Um, the more rare things, well, not rare, another bread and butter is probably hypospadias and other penile differences. Um, and then there's the rare stuff. We see things like um, bladder atrophy, spina bifida, uh, cloacal anomalies, uh, all kinds of, of just sort of differences that kids can be born with that affect that part of the body. Yeah. I, I love the the language that you have around differences versus disorders. So it, it's very yeah. noticeable on my end. I, I think we try really hard, uh, those of us in pediatrics, because I think that, you know, often we're the first ones meeting the family and talking about a difference, something that is that is 
unexpected in their child's body. And difference doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or wrong. And I think that there is a lot that can, there's a lot that comes from how you phrase things when you talk to families and a lot that they carry with them afterwards. And I think that accidental judgment is really going to going to affect that parent and that family and that child eventually. So, so I try to be very careful. I don't think any of us are perfect, but we work really hard. Yeah. What are some of the, the key traits or personalities that you think lead to someone being a good pediatric urologist? Well, I think that there are the personality traits and I think that there's the physical aspect to it. So I think personality wise, we have to be just to be a urologist in general, you have to be pretty relaxed. I mean, we're we're kind of talking about a part of the body that a lot of other doctors and people in the public find embarrassing or distasteful and don't want to talk about, look at, touch. Um, so for us to go into urology in the first place, we're we're pretty laid back. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We joke around a little bit. Um, I think pediatric urologists take that to a next level and that we're also pretty patient with families because parents, again, you know, these are things that are not talked about in public. They've never heard about the diagnosis before their child has it. They're typically embarrassed. They sometimes don't tell family members, even something as simple as an undescended testicle. Nobody talks about this stuff, you know? So even undescended testicles are incredibly common and they've never heard of it. They think that something is, is absolutely terrible with their child and, and they're embarrassed and ashamed. So I think that we are are particularly patient when it comes to that and particularly understanding and and take our time. Um, and then there's the physical aspect. You know, clinic is only a portion of what I do. The other portion is surgery. And the surgeries that we do, we tend to be open surgeons. We all use either loops or microscopes or the robots. So we're working on really small, delicate things. And to be a good essentially a microscopic surgeon, which is what pediatric surgery often is, at least in, at least in urology, um, you have to be pretty patient. You have to have good hand-eye coordination. You have to be, move, move carefully and with precision. Um, and I think all of us are perfectionists as well. You know, we, we certainly care about function, but we're also talking about some aesthetic components when it comes to reconstructing genitals. And so I think that you have to be a little bit of a perfectionist, a little bit obsessive about that aesthetic component to do a good job. A a lot of people will hear this conversation and potentially be interested in pediatric urology, but they may doubt their hand-eye coordination that you just talked about, their their manual dexterity. And, And you said that you came in with a lot of experience working with your hands. Do you think that's something that a student should immediately cancel pediatric urology because they don't think they're talented enough? Or do you think it's a skill to learn? No, absolutely not. It's a skill that can be learned. Um, I think you have to love it. If you don't love working with your hands, you're not going to practice and get better. But I think that anybody who walks into this profession, I certainly see trainees who come in gifted, but I think it matters more how you apply those gifts. And, And as with anything surgical, it matters most what you choose to do. So you can be the most technically brilliant surgeon, but if you make the wrong choices, you're not going to have good outcomes. So I think that that certainly there is a a love for that technical aspect that is necessary for for pediatric urology, but I don't think that that there that you have to have an automatic and instant natural aptitude. You have to be willing to work at it though and yeah. practice. Start playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's, that's or, or sewing. Yes. You know <laughs> or 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 you know uh 
fixing your toilet, <laughs> which is what I've been doing. Start working now. on your car. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Anything. <laughs> so many ways. Yes. Uh, a lot of students go into medicine because they love the the Sherlock Holmes aspect of it, the diagnosis and trying to figure mm-hmm. out what's going on. With pediatric urology being a very specific surgical subspecialty, do you get to do a lot of that? Or are you more of the the fixer? So, so we are the more of the fixers, and I, I think that in it's very common for for people to be broken into those two categories: the the Sherlock Holmes types who like the diagnosis, and then those who like to fix. Certainly, I do diagnosis. Um, there are some uh, diagnostic uncertainties in my world, but very few, to be honest. Most of where the conversation and the combined, you know, the the decision-making that I do together with families has to do with the path to take the treatment. Um, and that can be surgical, it can be non-surgical, it can be behavioral, it can be medical. There are many, there are many treatment choices, uh, but it's true that pediatric urology tends to be a specialty involved in, in finding a solution more than it is in finding a diagnosis. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you or a typical week if there's no typical day? Yeah, so so I actually have a really unique uh, position. So I'm actually 50% clinical and 50% research. So it depends on what kind of day I'm having. If I'm having a lab day, uh, I will usually be writing grants. I'll be checking on experiments uh, at the lab. Um, I have a million meetings these days, always on Zoom. Um, a typical clinic day, you know, I get in and it's it's all morning, new patients, follow-ups, um, reviewing ultrasounds, maybe some small procedures in clinic, uh, and then, you know, seeing people pre-op, post-op, uh, just really busy clinic days. Surgery days are, are surgery, pretty much all day long. And I kind of go back and forth between the more bread and butter cases, the day surgery cases, which are, you know, kind of about an hour each, pretty simple, straightforward with fantastic outcomes and then uh, doing the longer cases. So I do a lot of reconstructive cases um, and those will be kind of a whole day affair, sometimes with a team of surgeons, uh, just just a really long, involved, interesting, complex case. So really a lot of different things, which is I think what it what drew me to pedi- to urology in the first place and definitely to pediatric urology. Now, I, I love when I get to talk to physicians who do a ton of research and don't have a PhD because it, there's this huge misconception in the, the pre-med world that you have to go to an MD-PhD program if you mm. want to do research. Do you feel like not having a PhD has held you back in any way from your research standpoint? Absolutely not. Um, I, I find more interesting that the clinical conversations I can bring to the table are are shockingly few and necessary. Yeah. Um, so I collaborate with a PhD um, at the University of Connecticut. Uh, she is fantastic. She's brilliant. And quite simply, she does not have the experience or time to have a clinical to have the clinical know-how. Um, I, I have looked at some grants that were submitted with no clinical person, and you can really see the difference. And a lot of great work can be done out there in basic science. Um, but when you're re- talking about translational research, which is what I do, you know, trying, trying to bring things out of the basic science uh, lab and into kind of the clinical world, you need that clinical perspective. Um, I even think having it for some of the basic science things are really helpful. You know, I'll review papers all the time and I'll say, why did they ask this question? Um, it's an interesting question. Sure, there's there's worth in asking a question just to ask it. Um, but sometimes it's so disconnected from the needs of an actual person and patient that that it's 
you really have to wonder why the effort and the money was put into that particular question. So no, I don't find that the PhD is, that I miss the PhD at all. Um, I have lots of friends with PhDs who ended up not doing research. Um, I think going into a research career has more to do with if you want to dedicate your time to that. Um, It, and it's it's a lot of work, I'll be honest. <laughs> and it's and it's not a sure thing. You know, with my clinical work, if I put in the time and I work hard and I do a good job, my patients will have a good outcome. I will be successful and things will go well. With research, it is luck. You know, I can work incredibly hard. I can be incredibly talented. I can have a great idea. But if I miss the timing on where the funding is coming from, if I am not part of a zeitgeist that is in motion, I will not succeed in my research career. And so I think there's a level of uncertainty that you have to be willing to undertake. It's interesting. I've never thought about it from that angle, but it's definitely a a, a key part of it, right? There's a lot left to other people's decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for me, it's nice to go back and forth between the research and the clinical, because sometimes in the clinical, it's it, it feels a little bit more formulaic um, and a little bit more, you know, just knows the grindstones, doing the same thing over and over again. And, and yes, it's lovely to get good outcomes, but it's still uh, a little bit repetitive. And then I can go into the research side where where things are more exciting and more uh, thought provoking. Uh, but then when I start to hit my head up against a wall because I'm not getting anywhere, <laughs> I can go back to the clinical. Yeah. What does call look like for you? Yeah, so there are not a ton of pediatric urologic emergencies. Um, so we're we're on call. I typically take a week of call at a time. Um, I do inpatient. I do outpatient. Um, I'm lucky to work with residents. They I happen to have very good residents. They are fantastic. Um, I pretty much don't have to do much except show up when they tell me to show up to do a surgery. Uh, we occasionally have some torsions. We have the occasional surprise emergency, um, surprise newborns with something unexpected. Uh, but it's it's pretty manageable. Um, one of the night, I get a lot of phone calls from families that I take directly. Uh, but, but I find that pediatric urology families are really, they're just great people. You know, they're really appreciative of the care that they're getting. And so if they're calling me on a Saturday, they are, it's, it's a pleasant conversation. I feel happy that I can help them and they feel happy that they can get the answers they're looking for. Now, stereotyping women for a second, (laughs) I apologize. Mm -hmm. Usually the work-life balance is something that is more of a concern. Do you think pediatric urology is one of those surgical subspecialties that lends itself to that? I think it's hard. I'm not sure that it's that different from urology. I do think urology in general has a little bit more flexibility for work-life balance just because the types of emergencies we get are fewer and far between. Mm. Um, I'll say that adult urologists have usually larger groups with bigger call pools. Uh, So you're on call less often, even though the call might be a little bit busier. Um, With pediatric urology, we tend to be a smaller group in the call pool. So we are on call more frequently, Um, but I'm not sure it's, it's not terrible. Yeah. That's good. If you have residents. Yeah. (laughs) If you have residents. Residents are awesome. Nice. What does the, the training path look like to become a pediatric urologist? Yeah, so we're adult urologists first, uh, and I think that's actually a misconception of our pediatric colleagues. So most of the pediatric, many of the pediatric non-surgical subspecialists are pediatricians first and then specialize. Uh, But all the surgeons come from the adult surgical specialties and then specialize in pediatrics. So I did, uh, so it's a five to six years of general urology, which does include pediatric urology, and then a two-year fellowship. Okay. So you, you have to, uh, you have to enjoy the process and, and be able to tolerate the adult side, even if 
pediatrics is something you know you want to end up in eventually. Exactly. And so that's why I feel like it it attracts a certain type of person. Um, I would be happy as an adult urologist as well. If that was my future, I am happier as a pediatric urologist, but I, I would be, you know, I, I love taking care of my 80 year old vets. You know, that was a great population too. Yeah. So I think the people who end up in pediatric urology would be happy either way. A lot of surgical subspecialists come out and need to do a lot of general stuff as they're building their patient population and and finding Mm -hmm. their niche. Is that something as a pediatric urologist, you can still do adult urology as you grow? So I think it depends on your job. Uh, Most hospitals and most larger organizations, larger groups are going to want a pediatric specialized pediatric urologist. Uh, So I believe to keep my pediatric subspecialization, I need to see 70% pediatric patients. Uh, There are certainly people out there who are practicing uh, a a more mixed population. But when you think about the fellowship trained pediatric urologists, there are not that many of us, maybe about 500 in the country. So most of us are pretty dedicated to pediatrics. If we're going to go through that two-year fellowship, we mostly do kids. Um, in terms of do we see more general things or the more specialized things, again, I think this is where being in a larger academic institution is really helpful. You know, my institution is not typically seeing uh, the the really bread and butter case. You know, the bread and butter stuff is going a little bit more in the community. So by the time the kids get to us, it's usually a little bit of a higher level. And we get the more complex things, the more difficult referrals that aren't aren't doing well in the community for whatever reason. Now, because the field seems to be so small, does that make applying for those fellowships pretty competitive? It depends on the year. So we we swing back and forth. Sometimes there are way more applicants in spots. Sometimes there are way more spots than applicants. So it's a complete, it's a complete guessing game any any particular year. Um, I think that what happens is that depending on the climate and how people are talking about pediatric urology or the mentors that you have and the people you run into, yeah. we'll either get a glut of applicants or we'll get very few. Um, I'll say the job market is the same. There are plenty of jobs out there, but they, it depends on the kind of job you're looking for. So if, if you're very specific about the type of job you want or the t- location, it can be harder to find a job. Then again, there are always openings. There are always people looking. Yeah. For the osteopathic student listening to this or or resident listening to this who wants to be a pediatric urologist, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias? I think they just have to be good in the same way as an MD would be good. Um, One of the residents that I worked with during my fellowship was a DO. She was fantastic. She got into a great fellowship. Uh, There were very few concerns about her. I think by the time you're in a urology residency, Nobody really cares where you went to medical school. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> As they should. Yeah, um, As they should, right? Yeah. For the, the future pediatrician listening to this, what do you wish they knew about pediatric urology, about what you're doing day in and day out to help their patients and help you do a better job? Oh, I think it's so tough. I, I actually feel bad for the for the generalists in general because recommendations are constantly changing. The way the way you would practice pediatric urology ten years ago is not how you practice it now. So I hope that pediatricians are patient with the ever changing recommendations. I, I think in pediatrics, when it comes to research and being data driven, it's really hard to get data. And so the way I practice 
is shifting all the time, you know, just trying to gather that best data, trying to do the best thing, trying to make the best choices. And so I think it can be very confusing for people who are referring to us. Um, so I hope that pediatricians don't feel bad if they refer for one thing and are, and it ends up being wrong. Um, and I also hope that they just call if they're not sure, because it, it's almost impossible to keep up with the recommendations and the constant changes. Yeah. What other specialists do you work closely with? Pediatric nephrologists, probably the closest. Um, and then the pediatric neurosurgeons because of our spina bifida kids um, and the pediatric orthopedic surgeons for bladder atrophy. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into pediatric urology? Oh, um, I feel like I was very lucky that I had so many mentors uh, who were at different points in their career. And so I've, I've, I've avoided some pitfalls along the way. Um, during my residency, I really thought that I could kind of burn the candle on both ends and do research and be very clinical and do really well. And I was really lucky to have a mentor who was a couple of years ahead of me in training who who kind of hit the midpoint of his career around when I was looking uh, at fellowships and then and then also at jobs and gave me some really fantastic feedback about um, avoiding that. And so I think when it came to negotiating the position I have now, I really was very careful to ensure that my goals and the structure in the job that I took were aligned. Um, and I think that that has been very helpful. Um, and I think that's not even a pediatric urology specific piece of advice, but, but just maybe any job. Um, but I think that if you, if you don't have the support around you to do what you love, then you will find yourself constantly doing things that you don't love as much. Um, and I noticed that in the pandemic even more as resources are scarce, uh, because I have a contract that really protects and supports the research, which I love, it has allowed me to hold on to that even in a pandemic. Yeah, that's interesting. Good, good insight. Thank you. What do you love the most about being a pediatric urologist? I love the kids. <laughs> I love the patients. They're awesome. Um, they are fun to be around. They are brave. They are cool. They are interesting. And they're just kind of the highlight of my day. For students and, and residents and, and medical students, et cetera, who love the kids and are interested in a pediatric subspecialty or pediatrics in general because of the kids, but are unsure of dealing with parents, how do you, how do you make that balance? Oh, I mean, I, I guess it's hard for me because I, so I was a parent before I uh, was a resident. So I was a parent, mm. I, I had my first child uh, while I was doing research in between medical school and residency. So it's really hard for me to be a doctor without also being a mom. Yeah. Um, so I guess it was just always very easy for me to put myself in the shoes of that parent. I think that, you know, for these parents, it doesn't matter if it's the littlest thing in the world. It is a big deal. And I think just putting yourself in their shoes and saying, hey, this is a big deal to them. And even if it's not a big deal, that's that's what your job is. Your job is to explain why it isn't a big deal and and what's going to happen and give them give them all the reassurance in the world or guide them along a path when it isn't reassuring. Yeah. Um, I, when I keep that 
perspective in mind, I can put up with any any worried parent, <laughs> any 2 a.m. phone call. You know, I just put myself in their shoes and I say, yep, I would have done exactly the same thing. It's amazing what empathy can do. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What do you like the least? Um, I think that the... I think like all specialties, we are becoming a little bit more of, it's becoming more almost like commerce. Like uh, people show up and they want the, they they have something in mind that they want and they want to come in and have this procedure and then they want to go. Um, and I guess I, I didn't come into medicine wanting to be I think I don't see patients as consumers. I don't see what I do as providing a service. I really see us as um, working together for the health of the child. And so I think that that move towards more of a commercial bent to medicine is what frustrates me the most. You know, I want to see my post-op patients afterwards. I want to have conversations beforehand about the pros and the cons. I, I want to be thoughtful about making choices. And I, I don't like feeling, uh, I don't like when, when I'm, I feel like I have to provide a service, um, and that no one is, is being thoughtful about health, healthcare choices for their child. Do you see any major changes coming to the field that may affect potentially someone's desire to enter the field? I think that pediatric urology is a very young field. Uh, we've probably only been around, I think, about about uh, maybe a little less than 20 years. Uh, only got our subsp subspecialty certification maybe 15 years ago. And so I think that as time goes on, we are getting more and more awareness of pediatric urologists. So I actually think what is happening is that there's going to be more demand from patients and from families for a pediatric urologist. Um, I also think that more kids with congenital differences are, are being born and surviving and kind of growing up into adulthood. And so I also think that there's been a big shift towards translational pediatric urology, basically taking care of these congenital differences as the children are now in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s. So if anything, I think that the demand for pediatric urologists is going to increase, but that what we do is going to shift slowly away from uh, the younger population and more upfront surgical intervention to more of a management and a long-term relationship. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a pediatric urologist? Absolutely. Any final words of wisdom for the student listening to this potentially interested in pediatric urology? Well, I just hope that they go and meet some pediatric urologists. I think that that in the same way that mentorship was so important to me, I think that you can you can read all you want and listen to what you like, but going and checking out the day-to-day, -day, going and shadowing, talking to somebody in the field, I think that's going to give you an incredible insight. And especially pediatric urologists, we are not scary. We love to teach. We love to hang out. We love kids. So we also love students. And you know, I hope that anyone listening just finds their local pediatric urologist and, and goes and hangs out. All right. So there you have it. Again, Dr. Courtney Rowe, pediatric urologist. Amazing story, a non-traditional story. And again, just highlighting the exposure to a mentor, showing someone their path to a specialty, something that seems to come up over and over and over again. And obviously right now, as I'm recording this, we're in COVID times. And so it's, it's really hard to get out there and find a mentor. But we have learned that 
life continues even in a virtual world, which is why I set up e-shadowing, which is kind of an extension of specialty stories. If you're listening to this when this podcast comes out on Wednesday, we have e-shadowing every Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern live. And that e-shadowing session, the replay is available through Sunday night or until Sunday night. And then we'll throw it up on YouTube at premed.tv. The cool thing about e-shadowing is the platform that I'm using can track the hours or the minutes that you're watching. And we also have a quiz. And if you watch enough and you pass the quiz, then you can get credit. And we'll, uh, we have a, a system to automate sending you a certificate at the end of e-shadowing or when you need to apply to medical school so that you can at least get some exposure, some quote-unquote shadowing hours. Now, obviously, every medical school is going to be different with how they accept these hours, but they understand that shadowing is, is non-existent right now for the most part. And virtual shadowing hours are going to be better than no shadowing hours right now. So go check it out, eshadowing.com. I hope you have a great week. See you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.